Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. I am absolutely delighted to introduce today's guest, the one and only Elle Wright from Feathering the Empty Nest. And on the day her new book is launched, which I've been lucky enough to read, A Bump in the Road. Elle's new book takes us on her unforgiving journey of loss, infertility, treatment, tests, and all the drugs since tragically losing her son Teddy in 2016. Then, when they least expect it, an awful treatment, Elle conceived her darling rainbow baby girl, which in Elle's words, is not a happy ending, but the start of a new chapter. Except this time, it's a good one. Hello, Elle. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. It's um, it's a real privilege to have you. We're very honoured. <laughs> Amazing. So, Elle, I wanted to start with um, the most important um, few questions, if that's okay, um, which have, yeah. I'm sure, burning on people's lips, which firstly is, how is Carol? Carol is very well, yeah. I mean, I haven't obviously seen much of her um, of late. We have been very fortunate in recent months, like since my parents had their first vaccination, we've been bubbled up with them because we're allowed oh, to have good. a yeah. port bubble over here. So um, from sort of February time, mid-February time, I've been able to see my mum and dad again and I hadn't seen them since sort of before Christmas. So it's been really nice to um, to see them. And yeah, I was getting to the point where I was thinking, okay, I'm ready to see my parents now. Um, But yeah, she's really well. Thank you. Good, good. We've missed her on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) And the other person I've I've personally really missed on Instagram is Boris. How is Boris? Boris is very well. He is settling into his new life as an exemplary big brother. Um, (laughs) Although not always exemplary. um he 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 was it took him a few weeks to adjust to the fact that you know Olivia was sticking around and um he he now he loves her he follows her around everywhere now she's does he if she sits on the mat he goes and sits next to her um when she's in her high chair she throws food he is there to catch (laughs) he's loving he's loving this time at the moment that's so sweet mine is um my daughter's 16 months old and my dog, I think he's still sulking. He's not over it at all. <laughs> Bar the food aspect, which likewise, he, he's there, like there. That's what they're there for. <laughs> which is quite handy because it does stop me having to do so much cleaning up. But um, yeah, he's really not happy about it still. He still thinks he's the, the baby of the house. But there we go. He'll get over it eventually, I think. <laughs> so oh, obviously I've been lucky enough to um, read your book. And I wanted to ask you, did you keep a diary during all of your um, treatment? I didn't keep a diary, but I do do journaling. So um, I think I've talked about um, Kelly's Bees Knees journal a lot yes, that yes. I've used so much in recent years. Um, she she started it as the, it used to be called the Love Yourself Lean journal. Um, and it was something that I started 
probably about nine months after Teddy died. Um, really just to kind of try and find those happy moments in the day that were a bit thin on the ground at the mm. time. But what I ended up doing over the course of those years was sort of recording in them every day what was going on with regards to my cycles and treatment and drugs and how everything was making me feel. So it wasn't really a diary. It ended up being more of a record. So when I went to write the book in spring last year, if there was anything in my mind that I was a bit fuzzy on, I just went back through through my journals because I've kept them all because they're, you know, a year at a time and, and checked that my memory was actually correct. That's amazing because the, the detail <laughs> just kind of blew my mind a little bit because I, um, as soon as I'd finished one one aspect of treatment, that that was gone. It was forgotten about and I could only sort of focus on what I was doing at the, at the current time. So for you to be able to recall years of it, I was I was reading it with my mouth open going how has she managed this <laughs> to be honest though I've got one of those really weird memories and I think it's something that I've inherited from my mum is I can remember down to when I was a child conversations that I had with people actual words that people said to me but that's really annoying I can remember conversations word by word and I am that annoying friend that when I disagree with somebody about something you know a couple of my best friends of something that happened at school or something when we were younger I will say no that is not what happened that is not how it was said <laughs> <laughs> um, because I just remember the weird the weirdest things I remember um and so yeah I think in this experience it's kind of actually done me a huge favor because I I genuinely have remembered things that were said in rooms and things that um you know happened in those moments and I I don't know whether I've hung on to them more in more detail because as you know those things are really quite traumatic as well and I think we do hold on to more traumatic things in you know we can replay it in our minds mm. can't we and um yeah so it, I just recounted it as I as I remembered it well that was um you did a very good job <laughs> that's all I can say Thank you. <laughs> Um, and I wanted to ask you as well. So we actually were renovating our kitchen at exactly the same time you were renovating yours. Oh, wow. um, so I remember following you so closely because um, we were actually going through our IVF at the same time. Yeah. We had our, our transfer during the whole process when we had no kitchen and we were, you know, everything had been moved and the whole house was covered in dust. And um, and you were basically posting very, very similar images yeah. on on your on your page. But you posted a lot over that time. Um and, or maybe I felt you posted a lot because I was going through similar. Um, but you were going through an awful lot as well, personally, and, and with, yeah. the, um, with, your, with the IVF and, and with the loss. Did you, did you post at the time as a way of kind of coping? Was it, was it an escapism? Definitely. I think there was, there was a period where I didn't post for kind of almost a month, definitely a few weeks um, after when it got really complicated from the beginning of March, I sort of disappeared offline for a bit. And that was purely because I wasn't there because I was in hospital most of the time. If I wasn't at a hospital appointment, I was recovering from surgery and mm. I was, and I think there's only, although I tend to write about things retrospectively. So, mm -hmm. you know, now I've written about something when I've been, when I've been through it, when I've traveled through those emotions, I do find it incredibly difficult to write and talk about stuff as I'm in the thick of those emotions. Yeah. Um, and so unless it was a particularly difficult time where I, you know, completely 
sort of slipped out of view for a few weeks. Um, for the most part, over the course of that um, renovation, I, I used it as, of course I used it as escapism. I've used this whole house as escapism <laughs> since, um, since Teddy died. And, you know, that that's why I named my blog what I named it, because it was all about using our home and my passion for doing this as a, as a massive form of escapism. And that's what my Instagram became for me. And when you go offline for, for a month or so, is your is your inbox full of people checking up on you and, and finding um, out how you yeah, are? Yeah, it, it was at the time. At the time it was. Um, I'm not particularly active online at the moment. Um, and my my inbox tends to go through, you know, fits and starts of, of being busy and not, not being busier. But I think probably not as busy right now because people know that I'm offline for a different reason mm. and it's a happy reason and actually yeah. I haven't slipped off the radar because I'm in hospital or incredibly unhappy I'm, I'm really the happiest I've been in a long time and I'm just enjoying it good that's so good to hear um and reading your book you put yourself through a lot and like you said you were willing to try absolutely anything um to help the process to get pregnant was there a time that you questioned your sanity Absolutely. <laughs> Excuse my language, but there were times when I would, you know, I think I even say in the book, if at any point a doctor had said to me, do you know what you need to do? You know, strip naked, set yourself on fire and run down the road. That'll do the trick. And we've all been there, right? When you go through treatment and you just think, I feel so desperate right now that I just, there, there isn't, there is there are a few things that I wouldn't give a shot if I if I didn't think that they you know they were gonna mm-hmm. do something help in any way mm-hmm. and I think the other thing with it was is when you go through particularly when you get to the point of fertility treatment in as much as it, it becomes IVF mm. um to a certain extent you definitely have a feeling and I don't know if you found this that you know you've tried so hard for so long that suddenly finally you're not shouldering the burden of, of mm. all of that responsibility and you're you're kind of handing ownership mm. of that over to some somebody professional yes. and you're saying okay this is also your thing to deal with now you're helping me you're the expert um but alongside that I guess I also felt that you know I tried so hard we'd come this far I'd already done everything that I'd been doing to try and get my cycles back to keep mm-hmm. myself healthy and actually I guess I wanted to know that I'd given it my best shot that there, and I, I write about this in the book. I, I didn't want to get to an end of a cycle of treatment and think you didn't give it your all. You could have done that. And, you, and I, I guess I'm that kind of person. I always just take everything to the absolute limit. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to know that I'd, you know, that I'd given it everything. So then if it didn't work, mm-hmm. um, that I could say, okay, well, you know, there was nothing that I didn't try. Mm, absolutely. And tell me about the Chinese medicine. How did it taste? <laughs> have you ever had those Chinese? No, herbs? I have to be honest. So I, I think I dealt with it slightly differently. So what you were just saying about when when we finally had someone to take control, for yeah. me, it was just the best feeling. Um, because suddenly, I, I just, I, I, I didn't I certainly didn't relax, but. It wasn't up to me to watch my ovulation to make sure we had sex at the right time and yeah. X amount of times. And um, 
And the fact that somebody else was telling me exactly what to do, when to do it, um, was just amazing for me. Um, and I, I almost went the opposite way. Um, I don't know, maybe being a midwife, I probably should have done more research, but I, I didn't want to. I didn't look into anything. I just trusted this man who I think was an incredible man. And he is, a, he's a lovely doctor. And I trusted him wholeheartedly. And I just said, yes, I'll do exactly what you say. And, yeah. and that is what I did. And I, I didn't Google, I didn't do anything other than eat a lot of chocolate um keep my daily exercise um under control because I'm a bit of a I like I like to exercise um and 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 just trust in what he said um I think that's how I managed it I did acupuncture I did reflexology um but they're nice (laughs) they're a treat so yeah definitely and people don't think that acupuncture is the amount oh it's amazing I've had over the years, you know, when I've talked about I'm going to an acupuncture appointment or I've written about it on on the blog and the amount of people who've got in contact with me and saying, is, is it horrible though? Is it painful? Because I think we have this vision, don't we, of people lying with hundreds of little needles all the way. And it's not like that at all. You know, I, I guess my my acupuncturist probably uses a dozen needles on me at most in, in one treatment session. And mm. it. Uh, you lie there and you just kind of go off into your own little world don't you and sometimes I, she'll chat to me sometimes you know I actually saw her on Saturday which was lovely in months um yeah and it was really nice to have treatment because I knew I had a busy and a hard yeah. week coming up and I just wanted to kind of give myself that clarity of mind to be able to deal with this week um, and that's another thing that it's great for. It doesn't have to be to help you physically. Um, mm. For me, acupuncture has helped me so much in this entire grieving process because not just grieving Teddy, but the fertility process is, is a process of grieving, of course, isn't it? You're absolutely month to month, cycle to cycle, treatment to treatment. You are grieving something that you ache for so badly. And that needs to be, well, for me, I found it needed to be managed. Mm. Or I could... Time, I think, is a massive thing you grieve, the the loss of time. Yeah. For me, one of the most frustrating things with fertility treatment is it takes so long. And you have one, you have one period, you have to wait four weeks, maybe, if you're lucky for the next one. Like, why four weeks? Are you kidding me? I I also found, I don't know if you found this, when we did our second round of IVF, IVF, which was when they switched us onto a longer protocol, Mm -hmm. to me, it just felt so counterproductive because we were starting, technically, we were in that round already in January, in, in December, the end of 2018, but we didn't actually start drugs until the January because I had to wait until day 21 to even oh. start on bucerolin. And then you have to do two and a half weeks of bucerolin, mm-hmm. which is actually shutting everything off and, and stopping everything. And you think, I don't understand this at yeah. all. What you know, what is this? And so by the time you actually get to a transfer, you know, you're eight weeks into that process. Um, and it just, yeah, the time, it's like a time vortex. Mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. sucks you in. And and I, I, again, I've written about it in the book of feeling like you just watch those months tick over into years and all of those things that you haven't planned for or you, you've you said no to because mm-hmm. you might be going might to be, yeah. might be pregnant again. And it's like you just kiss goodbye to the years. And it is, I think that, at the moment, and I, I said this to a friend not long before Christmas, she asked me how I was feeling and how I was, you know, Olivia at the time was sort of four, 
four, five months old. And she said, but how, you know, checking on me as a mum, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Mm-hmm. And I said to her, you know, aside from the fact that she's here and she's healthy and she's great, one of the things I think that has made me feel that sort of indescribable happiness again is the fact that I've been able to step off that merry-go-round. My life is no longer dictated from month to month, cycle to cycle. I'm no longer watching everything slipping away while I'm, you know, trying to climb the rungs of the ladder and the ladder's just sliding down and that's gone. It's like someone waves a magic wand and says, you're free. Did you get that feeling? Well, I was going to say, no doubt for you now, it's the other cliche that time is going so fast because she's here and suddenly (laughs) the time speeds by, doesn't it? And before you know it, they're they're crawling and walking. (laughs) I know, I know. And, you know, there is that as well. But it's... It doesn't feel like lost time, whereas yeah, I know, think of when course, you are yeah. in fertility treatment, it feels like you're pressing pause on your life mm-hmm. so that you achieve this one thing mm-hmm. that almost starts to become unachievable. Completely, um, yeah. And yeah, just to know that that is is over is just I can't tell you that, that it took probably a few months for all of that anxiety to start to really unravel and you know let all those feelings go but yeah now I feel I feel really thankful that it that that chapter that part is is over. I always say that I'm just in awe of women who who managed to keep a full-time job and go through IVF treatment and I, I, I just have no clue how they manage that because Absolutely. having IVF treatment is is a full-time job there's there's no time to do anything else and I talk about fertility admin in, in yeah. the book well you know talk about the 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 amount of administrative tasks you have to undertake mm-hmm. in order to go through IVF treatment is mind-blowing isn't it yeah the amount of extra checks and extra appointments and all your smear tests about to run out so we need that we need another blood test from you you need to go to the other hospital and get this and get that so that we've got all of our paperwork and all of our ducks in Mm -hmm. a row and we can go again and and I I said the same you know I've got friends who've who've been through it or gone through it who are are working full-time and were in offices at at that time just incredible now um but I felt, you know, very fortunate that I was able to be in a in a job, you know, writing from home that allowed me to have days out if I needed mm-hmm. or have weeks out and not to have to explain to someone my whereabouts because mm-hmm. that's another thing. When you're in a workplace, mm-hmm. you then have to say, you know, you have to say to your employer or the people who, who surround you at work, well, this is where I'm going, this mm-hmm. is what I'm doing. And if you don't feel that you can say that, it, it must feel incredibly difficult to have to try and hide that from so of many course, people. Yeah. And even on another level, for, for us, um, one of my injections, I wasn't, I wasn't able to administer myself. It was in my bottom and it was a very big, yeah. thick, um, thick injection. <laughs> um, and so my husband had to do it um, and he's a very busy man. And suddenly he was having to schedule his diary. Um, not that he shouldn't have to, but, you know, when you're working for like full time as he was yeah. and had, to, he literally had to schedule meetings around, my bottom injections <laughs> and you start to get you do you start to question your sanity and what on earth is going on uh, and that's not one you want to put in a shared like no. access diary is no. it? 
injection. <laughs> and there would be moments where we'd be like, quick, quick, upstairs now. And our eldest son, like maybe would like, shove the television on. So he was busy and not watching what was going on. And we'd run upstairs, not for a quickie. But for a... Quick injection. Yes, exactly. It serves the same purpose though, right? <laughs> <laughs> Romance certainly isn't dead, that's for sure. <laughs> and um, when you finally did fall pregnant with Olivia, um, it was obviously um, very unexpected. Yeah. How, this is a massive question. How did that, how did that feel? Because you were without drugs, without support, without, um, without IVF. And I, I asked this because f- for us, when we, um, when we did finally fall pregnant with our second through IVF, I was so attached to my injections and my medication that I did not want to let it go. And I would just beg for another week to stay on it just so I could have that reassurance of, of yeah. having the support of, of medication. Um, so how did it feel for you after all of that time? So the time period before I fell pregnant with, with Olivia, I, I'd been quite poorly with overstimulation syndrome. Yeah. And that was from a round that had started in August and finished at the end of September. And um, we it finished rather abruptly. We didn't make it to transfer because I had so many eggs retrieved. I'd literally gone from being a low responder to being yeah, some kind you. of crazy responder because yeah. I think I'd had this operation to remove some scar tissue over the course of the summer. And whatever had happened in there just changed how my body reacted to the drugs. Um, and it just went crazy. And I felt so unwell. So like to the point of, I think I, I describe in the book, I. I I could barely shuffle to the bathroom. Mm. It sounds so ridiculous. No, it but doesn't. No. The, the fluid that had leaked out into my stomach was up, kind of up under my ribs. Um, and it was that feeling of being heavily pregnant without actually being heavily pregnant, which is kind of another element yeah. of, <laughs> of okay, well, I feel like this. I've, I felt like I couldn't, couldn't breathe almost, like I was being dragged under. Um, but at the same time, you haven't even made it to embryo transfer. And it just feels so impossibly cruel. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just hard physically. It was really hard mentally and emotionally as well. Um, and I felt so battered after that round. I remember in o- that October, there was a glimmer of hope that we might be able to use one of those frozen embryos and do what they call a natural round. Just because I was so done with drugs, mm. I did not want and. I was probably, I'd got to the opposite point of view. I didn't want another injection. I didn't want another pessary up my backside. I didn't want (laughs) anything. I didn't, I just wanted to be so clean of all of that so that I could just feel myself again because I just didn't know whether I was coming or going. And um, unfortunately, the the opportunity of of a natural frozen cycle didn't work out for us because my body was still so confused. It didn't know what it was doing. So naturally it didn't ovulate that month. And I remember sitting with a nurse and, and her saying to me, you know, you're not ovulating. You you know, we can't do this natural round on you because your body isn't ovulating on its own. um, Which is why you're having IVF. And um, I just remember feeling so deflated when I, got that news like so upset and just I just felt so hopeless and um I actually think that was probably the point where I I talk about hope a lot in my writing and and in my Instagram posts I think that was probably the time for me where that hope that last little bit just got snuffed out and I was like 
okay, fine. Um, and I, I kind of felt like I gave up really. Mm-hmm. And um, as we went through into November, I had a, an early appointment with my consultant um, in that month. And he said, right, you know, we can go again with one of these embryos that we had in the freezer because the one blessing of that round was that we got a huge amount Mm -hmm. um and more than I had anticipated we Mm -hmm. would have on ice and he said we'll do a frozen round it's going to involve bucerolin again it's going to be a long one so once your period comes in December we can start all of that in January and we'll we'll go again and I think I was just so focused on that that I wasn't even thinking about trying for a baby the good old fashioned no. way. Well, why would you? No. And having been, told that, having been told that I wasn't ovulating, yeah. it wasn't even on my radar. I was literally like, right, it's November. Let's get through to December. Let's get through another Christmas. And then we can do this again. Like next year has to be our year. Um, and yeah. And then my period didn't come. And I waited and I waited a few more days. And I I remember sort of rustling around in a cupboard thinking, okay, well, there's my test that they'd given me in my IVF pack before this all went wrong last time. Um, And honestly, when I saw those two lines, I was, you know, when you do like a, like an over, I mean, I'm going to have to explain to the listeners what I'm saying. (laughs) Like a cartoon double take. (laughs) Like a blink. Because I was like, no, no. And it was early in the morning. And I just remember sort of bumbling downstairs and handing it to my husband and saying, here you go. Like, it was his birthday. Did you tell him you were going to do it? No. And it was his birthday. And I was like, surprise. (laughs) And And he did the same thing. He looked at it for a good 30 seconds before any kind of words came out of his mouth and he said I don't understand and I said neither do I (laughs) and that was kind of the extent of our conversation and um when I called the clinic because that was over a weekend I called them a couple of days later and and told them and and they would they were just over the moon and I because weirdly when I called them I remember thinking oh they're going to be so disappointed that I'm not (laughs) starting that I'm not starting my treatment I need to cancel my treatment round um but they were over the moon because of course this this is their dream scenario that some that that any woman doesn't have to put themselves through all of that mm-hmm. emotional and physical torment again they all they want right is for is for women to, to couples to fall pregnant and for um and for healthy babies to be born that's their job that's why they do their job um and so they were all yeah over the moon and um really helped to reassure me they they called me again a couple of weeks later to see how I was doing make sure that I you know booked um an early scan I actually opted not to have a super early scan because for us that had caused so much confusion Mm. and heartbreak during the time that we'd had a miscarriage in the in the other IVF round so I actually opted to wait until I was kind of over eight weeks sort of towards nine weeks so they would actually see something I think that's um I I completely 100% understand why you did it but I think that's such a brave decision as well um to wait um and and have that kind of that period although I hope that period for you brought some time of kind of just peace and um I was terrified I'll be honest I was really and it was over Christmas again but I just remember thinking this is the happiest even though I was worried really worried 
naturally because you know that trauma doesn't leave you does it no. I remember thinking this I need to grab this with both hands because this is the happiest news we've had over a Christmas in years <laughs> you know this is the happiest I felt at Christmas for probably four years at the time and so I thought right you know we need to we need to celebrate and feel some happiness for what has just come out of nowhere and um yeah I was I was worried before that scan um because you know once you've heard those words before you just you I think you go on autopilot and you sit there and you just play out every single scenario terrible scenario that could possibly happen when you go in there mm-hmm. in a sort of way to try and trick yourself okay well I'm ready for that yes then. no it's going to be okay because I know this is going to happen yeah so I know I can manage that don't get your hopes up you know mm-hmm. that kind of mentality and it's not that you want to be negative no part of you wants to be negative because it's the thing that you want more than anything um but you can't help yourself you cannot help what your brain does and and how that makes you feel and I think it's kind of a bit of self-preservation in a way isn't it exactly what I was going to say is totally a form of self-preservation so it it was a worrying time but equally it was um yeah it was a really really happy happy time and did you did you tell your family at Christmas uh yeah we told our parents and our siblings and um yeah I just remember particularly telling my husband's uh parents and my sister-in-law and her husband um my husband's other brother was it was in Australia so we called them later that day but particularly telling them on boxing day because we always have this big family boxing day at, at his parents house normally obviously yeah this <laughs> um, hopefully this year yeah hopefully and I just remember um it was before all of his aunties and uncles and everyone got there and uh we sort of Nico sort of said to his mum quickly while we were in the hall oh, actually um Ellen and I've got something we want to say and I was I just remember my heart was like pounding and I thought oh my god this is I felt like you know we were saying something huge because it's I don't know whether you found this whether you were trying when you were trying again and going through all of that it's your friends and family who know they want it as much for you as you want it and so you're kind of anticipating their reaction of how it's going to make them feel particularly you know my my in-laws and after they both sort of they all sort of squealed and shrieked and hugged us and I remember my husband's mum sort of taking me by the shoulders and holding me back and saying but I didn't even know you were starting treatment again I thought (laughs) you start treatment again because in them of course yeah that was the only way that that could have come about and at which point my husband looked at her and said we didn't and then everybody was like what it was like a double celebration because yeah. it was kind of like wow it, ha- it just happened so yeah that was that was amazing and what was it like seeing um her heartbeat for the first time oh god oh <laughs> I, I didn't think I would cry but that Oh, this is rubbish. I said this last week on my podcast. I need to invent some way of being able to pass tissues. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, as you know, it's just, an, it's not really something you can describe, is it? It's that feeling of just, yeah, pure and <laughs> joy of just thinking, I mean, obviously, there's an element of relief because mm-hmm. I think, particularly when you have um, imagined the worst and suddenly the worst hasn't happened. Um, but yeah, just I ca- I just can't I can't 
even put it into words that is how it made me feel oh it's amazing and then again I this is a a really big question but you then (laughs) and I'm trying I was trying not to make this too heavy because I'm so aware you've got three days of PR and I know I'm at the start of it and I was like oh I'm worried for you it's a heavy subject and do you know what I think that's why it's so important I was I was writing a Q&A for for Tommy's last night actually mm-hmm. about and some of the questions were was similar about you know why why did I feel it was so important to write about really personal hard hitting stuff and and all of those really personal emotions that we feel on that mm. journey and it's exactly because of this because you know there will be some people out there who who don't who don't feel that they can tell anyone and do feel completely isolated and completely alone on that journey and I guess there will be other people like you and I who've been through it who think okay well we we need to help to pave the way to have these conversations and as hard as it is sometimes to walk through that again I genuinely come out of these conversations and I think okay that's that's hopefully made even one person feel less alone in that and that's a good thing right yeah as long as you're being topped up as well because you're giving a lot so I want to make sure that someone's topping you up too absolutely um so the big question sorry is um I think when people have gone through loss a lot of the time when they find if if they're um, able to get pregnant again a lot of the anxiety is built up to the point of where they lost their their last pregnancy. Yes. Um, so whether or not that was an early miscarriage or uh, 16 weeks or, or wherever it was. Now, obviously for you, um, Teddy died at three days old. So your pregnancy, I'm imagining never, the, the anxiety never, never left you. No. And that was a really that was a really difficult thing to try and explain to people because everybody sort of assumes, I think, first of all, it's it's like a series of hurdles, isn't it, that you have to get over. Yeah. And the first one is getting pregnant again, getting to a first scan, getting to a 12-week scan, getting through all of your um, screenings mm-hmm. and uh, normally scan and all of those things. Um for me, every single one was like, okay, we're over that, we're over that, we're over that. And I kind of hit what I would call a sweet spot at around 24 weeks pregnant when I knew that the baby, now I know to be my daughter, uh, was was viable as a, as a, yeah. as a human baby, meaning yeah. that if she was born in the UK and was born from any point onwards, had she not been breathing, she would have been resuscitated, you know, all of those things mm-hmm. that kind of made me think, okay, we've made it to viable baby being born territory. Um, and I reckon that probably lasted for three or four weeks. And then I got closer towards the 30 week mark. And for some reason, having a three in front of it just felt I was on that sort of home stretch mm-hmm. towards the end. And the end was the bit I was terrified of because yeah, of course. You know, last time with Teddy, I'd had a perfectly normal, and I cannot stress this enough, healthy pregnancy, which I had worked all the way through, gone on maternity leave, had a little bit of time off, been induced because my waters were leaking. And then he 
became poorly hours after he was born. So I had absolutely no idea, no clue whatsoever that that was about to unravel quite in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when life has shown you that anything is possible and not necessarily in a good way that we mm -hmm. all want to believe and imagine, um, you start to believe that anything is possible. So even if somebody is saying, well, it will be okay this time, it couldn't happen again, it wouldn't happen again. Your brain is saying, well, of course, of course it could. Of course mm. it could happen again. Why, why could it not happen again? And, and again, it comes back to that thing of pregnancy after loss is so complex because it's not that any part of you is being negative. You don't want to believe that your baby is going to die again. Of course you don't. That is... That's the one thing that you do not want to happen, but you cannot help the way that your your brain works after that kind of trauma. You cannot help it. And I tried everything and it it just came down to taking it every, each day as at a time and not thinking in weeks or trimesters, mm -hmm. sometimes just thinking in hours because... Yeah. and. I have, have said all along, you know, lockdown for me was a, was actually a huge blessing because I didn't have to face the world. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to see anyone. I didn't have to make excuses for myself as to why I couldn't make it to things. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to face anybody who I didn't know who was a stranger coming up to me and asking me, is it your first baby? Yeah. Like people do in, in general, lovely chit chat. Yeah. And I could just hide from all of that. And just make it through just get my head down and and try and make it through as best I could and and that was the same for my husband you know he he was worrying for the baby but also was worrying for me course, because yeah. me just losing my mind basically and and then every now and then you know people would say something like oh don't get too stressed you don't want to stress <laughs> the baby out and oh I think, no Okay, so we'll add guilt. We'll add guilt on top of that as well. Yeah. Then, because as if I wasn't feeling awful enough, I'm now potentially going to stress my baby. And I, I was just—it was a minefield, you know, of so many emotions, so complex. Did you um, did you seek support? Did you did you speak to anyone during the time? Or I actually was really lucky that I had a case loading midwife. Um, so it meant I had one midwife who was wonderful. I cannot even tell you she is just amazing Aww. um and she also so I, I was I was under consultant led care mm -hmm. and it was my the same consultant who had looked after us all the way through our treatment so by this point she had known us for four you know for four years and every referral I'd ever had every operation I'd ever had I think by the time she delivered our daughter that was potentially the sixth time she'd operated on me. wow <laughs> she knows her way around <laughs> her better than I do um so you know I, I trusted her implicitly and yeah. I knew I knew that when I was in appointments with her and I was worried or I needed to talk about something I didn't have to really struggle to sort of advocate for myself mm -hmm. because she knew she almost knew what I was going to say before yeah. I said it. And that was wonderful. And between the two of them, they also referred me to um, they were very lucky at our hospital um, locally is they have a, a mental health midwife yeah. who is also there to give extra support. And 
they would call me every other week and Good. literally obviously it was phone calls because covid nice. um, and but we would have a conversation of you know half an hour an hour of all the things all of the things that were worrying me um how I was feeling and um and yeah that really helped because also during that time all of the normal things that I had come to depend on like acupuncture or reflexology or mm-hmm. seeing a, a, a talking therapist all of that was gone yeah so all of those support net parts of my support network were just gone and they were real coping mechanisms and so I had to during that time sort of use everything that hospital put in place for us um mm-hmm. to help get through it basically yeah. and I was reading um about you planning her birth and um about avoiding certain days and also <laughs> looking into um uh was it is it called a smart sock yeah, uh, for her sleep. So different methods of kind of control, bits that you could kind of manage. Um, yeah. And can can you talk us through that a little bit about how that helped you kind of get through those final weeks? I think, and people always ask me to like give advice. And I, no, I'm not asking I, for advice. Um, I want to no, know I, how, how you managed it. But just thinking, just thinking about that. It, like I, I do like to think, okay, how how would I give advice to myself? Does that make sense? And yeah. and I think I was kind of giving myself advice at that time. I was sort of sitting on my own shoulder and saying, okay, how can we get an element of control here? What what can I control mm-hmm. in a situation where I feel like everything, as we know with birth, yeah, is is out of our hands really you know well, we don't know when that baby is going to come we we maybe have an idea but anything can happen can't it and I think for me it was about trying to regain an element of control so that I didn't feel like everything was spinning out of control in the lead up to the baby's birth mm-hmm. um and yeah, as I write about in the book, Teddy was born on a Monday. And in my head, it sounds so crazy to say it. It actually does. No, it did. It, when I read it, it made so much sense. I, I don't think it's crazy at all. Consultant. I remember sitting in the room with her and saying when she floated that that date, that particular date to me. And I just said no. I, I just, just, before she didn't finish her sentence, I said no. And she sort of turned around and looked, sort of swiveled on her chair because she'd been looking. And she yeah. said, um, I said, I got, I'm... I know this is going to sound mad as I say it out loud, but I, I can't have this baby born on a Monday because Teddy was born on a Monday. And in my head, if a baby was born on a Monday, we would spend Monday to Thursday in hospital and then my baby would die. Mm-hmm. Like that, was, that, that was just how it was going to go. And I but just... also your reality. Totally. And, and even as I was saying, I was like, okay, that, that probably could never happen again. That sounds completely... But I needed to fix those little things mm-hmm. so that I didn't feel like it would happen. Um, so anyway, my, my cesarean section was was scheduled towards the end of a week. Um, and as luck or bad luck or fate or whatever you want to call it would have it, um, she actually arrived a couple of days early um, by emergency cesarean section. So she decided in true baby style that she was going to make her own very dramatic entrance as they do Um, are you you happy to talk about her very dramatic entrance because I was sat there with my mouth because you'd never I'd never read it before and I'd sat literally sobbing with my even though I knew the outcome (laughs) 
<laughs> my mouth was open. The midwife in me was going, oh my gosh. But it's so funny you should say that because when, after Olivia was born, because I'd written the book some time before and I went back um, to writing, just, I wrote that chapter in October. Um, and so I wrote the chapter and that chapter and the letter at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So I spent a, a weekend writing while my husband you know, did, did everything else. Yeah. And, um, and then after that, my mum had done all the edits on the, on the first part of the book, because obviously Liv, Olivia was so tiny by the time those edits came back, um, that I, I couldn't do it. And so yeah. my mum worked with my editor and she That's amazing. Helped. I love that you had that, um, you He'd know, family element. His name as well. So yeah. I knew that I was leaving it in good hands. Yeah. Um, and she she should have been a teacher. She loves the old <laughs> red. Um, she should have been a lot of things, but she's an amazing seamstress as well. <laughs> I bless her. And then, and but it's so funny you should say that because my mum even said when she was reading that chapter, her heart was in her oh. mouth. Even though she she was like, it's so weird. I obviously I knew the outcome. I knew yeah. the whole story, but she said she couldn't help but feel like that because you know I guess she's kind of relived it to a certain extent. But again, um, um, maybe as a midwife, again, I actually couldn't re- believe that that happened to you, having everything you'd been through, that you then had that birth um, I, or that experience prior to birth. It was yeah, like it just, how. <laughs> Even my consultant said, she said, you know, you couldn't make it up. But no. you know, that's, been, that's been your entire story. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, um, yeah, she, I can't even believe she was there, to be honest, because I, um, from what I hear, she was actually, she'd actually finished a shift and she'd already stayed a couple of hours longer than she should have done because she'd been on call delivering. Um, and she was in her office ready to go home. Oh, wow. And, um they called my midwife so the the paramedics called the hospital hold on we need to go back tell us what happened so basically I was at home a couple of days before I'd tentatively started to finally put things together for a hospital bag and pile them up in various places in a room I hadn't got as far as packing anything because you know um and I'd already had all my pre-operative stuff so I'd had my uh MRSA scan I'd had all my blood tests I'd had my two injections ready to get baby's lungs ready for mm-hmm. delivery um and that morning I'd gone in for my final thing which was my COVID swab um <laughs> and another blood test and got to that evening and um yeah I'd had my dinner my husband was still working upstairs and I put my plates in the dishwasher and I went to walk to the end of the kitchen because obviously we're having amazing weather in July to, to let Boris out and um the the doors were open anyway so I was walking towards and I just kind of can't even describe the feeling I described it as a pop in the in the book but it almost almost sounded like an elastic someone twinging an elastic mm. band I don't know that's what it felt like as well it was like a stingy pop kind of and I'd never had my waters break before because as I said with Teddy they were leaking and I needed to be yeah. induced so when I looked, I felt soaked. And when I looked down, I fully expected to see what I had seen when they broke my waters, mm-hmm. which is kind of that, it's not blood, blood, is it? It's a bit mixed. Clear, pinky, pinky, pinky. Pinky, yeah. And so that was what I was expecting to see. And I looked down and there was just a pool of blood on the floor. And I 
went to scream and no noise came out because I was just frozen to the spot. And I kind of sort of shuffled over to the hanging onto one of the back of the dining chairs. And I started trying to shout for my husband. And I think he could only hear me because I had the, the window to the um, top of the roof lantern open and he had the window open at the back of the house so he could hear me shout I mean I now think what would I have done if this was normal times and he was in London what God. would I have done yeah um it doesn't even um but he was at home and he came downstairs and I remember him saying oh for god's sakes I'm still working running no, no. <laughs> as he came into the doorway and saw me he just said fuck um I what do I do what do I do and I was like call the hospital call the hospital so he grabs his phone he calls the the, um midwife um wing uh, and they said call an ambulance call an ambulance now and at that point I thought oh my god some something's really wrong something's Mm. this is this is bad and um and of course you've spent all that time thinking it cool I'm just of course it can't happen again I know my brain is telling me it could but actually deep down I think you you are thinking of course it can't happen again mm-hmm. um and so when that happened I just I lay on the floor and I think I described this in the book just I, I just lay there on the floor in a like a blood just coming around me just lying on towels and the man on the end of the of the 999 call was saying to my husband, can you lift her leg up? Can you see if you, can you see an umbilical cord? Can you see a head? And I said to my husband, I said, I'm, I'm not in labor. I'm not in labor because I, you know, once you've been through labor, mm-hmm. you know what that feels like. I wasn't having contractions, um, but my tummy had tightened to the point of, it felt like a, a, ru- a ball of rubber bands and the baby was, I couldn't feel the baby moving. And that was all I kept saying is, I can't feel the baby moving. I can't feel the baby. And that, that was all that was coming out of my mouth. And Nico was saying, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It's going to be all right. They're on their way. going to be all right. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, my God. I'm, if my baby doesn't die, I'm going to die. And that was, I remember that thought being so clear in my mind. Um, because... It was the one thing that hadn't happened to me. (laughs) I know I'm I'm laughing about it because it sounds so crazy, but quite honestly, when you get to that point and you've had so many losses, so, so many operations, so much trauma, you think, okay, well, this is the one thing on the bingo card I haven't ticked off yet. And I was, I was just lying there, just terrified, just terrified because I could still feel the blood like trickling out and I was like I I, I can't stop it I don't know how to stop it um and the ambulance we're not far so long yeah we're only about 10 minutes from the hospital but because of everything that was going on in the world the ambulance took 35 minutes to get here 36 minutes I think were you not just like did you not want to just jump in the car I started I, after about 10 15 minutes I started saying to my husband just put me in the car put me in the car drive me to hospital put me like we will get there quicker and he was like no I'm not putting you in the car like this we don't know if moving you is the worst thing he you know and he was going you're going to be okay you're going to be okay you know when somebody's saying to you I don't know whether you've ever had you're going to be okay and in your in their eyes you can read that they 
probably don't believe what yeah. they're saying. They're actually going fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck. Yeah, and that, and that was his internal dialogue was, oh my God, this is really bad. And, and you know, he told me that afterwards. He said, I, I genuinely thought you were going to die. And it's just like, and he's going, you're going to be okay. And um, yeah, so I don't think I said much in the ambulance. I just remember lying on my side that they put me on facing the, the, the wall of the ambulance. I could see the blue lights in my peripheral vision and I could hear the sirens and I could hear them keep shouting blood pressure. Um, and they could listen to the baby with a stethoscope, you know, they were listening in, but because they're paramedics, not midwives, they're not allowed to tell you, you probably know this, they're not allowed to, to tell you if the baby's okay, they can only tell you if, you know, what your situation is. Mm -hmm. And so I just kept saying to her, please, please, is the baby, can you hear the baby's heartbeat? Is the baby, and I don't, and I said to her, quite frankly, I don't give a fuck about myself. This is not about me right now. And she said, we're going to get you there. That's all she kept saying. We're getting you, we're going to get you there in a minute. We're on the way. And yeah, we went through the doors into the delivery um, wing. And I just remember them like crashing open the doors, like casualty style. (laughs) And suddenly a sea of faces. Everyone was there waiting. And everyone's got masks, but also the shield masks on their face. And so to that extent as well, it made it a lot scarier because everyone was shouting, really shouting, because, you know, they don't know how much blood you've lost, whether you're with with it or not. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's like putting their hand on your shoulder, shouting their name in your face so you know who they are. And a lot of them had like names written as well because of not being very in view and it obviously being quite scary. And they put me into this side room and, you know, put the bed to the side. And before I knew it, I was being transferred onto there and they were wrapping the bands around my tummy. And and it all that felt like a real blur. And I just remember them wheeling the machine up and her turning it away from me. It's the first oh, thing she did. Oh, no. And I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And as soon as she found a heartbeat, she just, like, pumped the volume up. Like, <laughs> so it went boom, 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 like, round <laughs> And I just, oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever felt a relief like it. Um, and um, the profanities that came out of my husband's mouth were just... <laughs> Colourful. Yeah, I went blue. Um, <laughs> and th- that was the point at which my consultant walked in because, as I was saying, they had called my midwife when they knew I was on the way because she was supposed to be at my plans uh-huh. section. Um, and unfortunately she couldn't make it because she just had a family bereavement that evening and she said do you know whether um, my consultant was there to one of the the, uh, other midwives on the wing and they said well we think she she was here but she's we think she's leaving or she's in her office and my midwife said can you call down because and tell her that Elle's on the way because I'm sure she will want to to at least see her absolutely yeah Um, and apparently they called her and she just put her scrubs back on and came upstairs. (laughs) So yeah, she's amazing. Um, absolutely amazing. And, um, she sort of came through the door like, ah, you know, (laughs) I swear I saw like a halo around her. And and I just said to her, Oh my God, I've never been so pleased to see anyone in my life. And she knew that I could see that on her face. She knew that I was, and she took one look at me, you know, she got the old speculum out and took one look, sort of looked at the midwife. They didn't really say much to each other. I guess they were communicating via knowing looks. <laughs> and, um, you're probably fluent in knowing looks. Um, 
and uh, she just came back round to the, the couch next to my head and she said well you know best laid plans babies come when they come darling let's get this one out now and I was like having it having a baby now <laughs> having a baby now like you know and that was it and you know I always go back to this but all of this fuss that's kind of made online about what am I packing in my hospital bag and this is what I've got for me and this is what I've got for my baby and this is this and this is that this is why to me none of that stuff it, it didn't really ever matter I wasn't really big on it when I was expecting Teddy um but it, even less so when I was expecting Olivia I couldn't bring myself to do it because mm. I had been that person who had unpacked a hospital bag yeah. where nothing had been used of course um I turned up to hospital in a blood-soaked dressing gown and my husband had my mobile phone in his pocket and everything was fine. <laughs> it might not have felt fine in the moment, but, you know, we just called my father-in-law who they were on the way to the house anyway because Horace had been left on his own, God forbid. <laughs> um, and my husband said to him, can you go upstairs? Elle has started doing put, putting piles of random stuff around but she hasn't packed a bag there's a bag in the wardrobe can you grab it can you throw everything that's there in it and you can you just deliver it here and they so say that was what we had for that night and the next morning my husband went home and he got some extra stuff and I have fun. to say it's a bit of a story I think for the whole of a child's life is they don't actually need as much as everyone makes out they do it's um you don't you don't need all the crap they they just need love love and a few bits of clothes food and, and water I, yeah and I think we're so hyped up I think particularly now because of social media mm -hmm. and stuff like that of all oh, you must have this and you must yep. have that and you you can't possibly go to hospital without all of this stuff and okay there are some things that are really really handy flip-flops and dry shampoo are never going to go amiss. <laughs> but you know like you say as long as you have a little something to put the baby in when they come out and actually for the first however many hours until the morning Olivia didn't have any clothes in the yeah, skin to skin yep. she was on my chest all night long she Perfect. didn't need a baby grow nope. so she was fine. I just tucked her into my hospital gown and stared at her from the moment Aww. she was born to, you know, the next morning. My husband got a couple of hour, hours sleep. And I think when my consultant came in the next morning to, you know, debrief and everything with me, she said, have you slept at all? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> Mad. Um, and it was, yeah, it was lovely. I just stared at her. Um, can I ask about um, getting to day three with Olivia? was that a massive yes, milestone it was so we went home the day before we stayed the following full day in hospital she was born at like half 10 in the evening so we spent the following full day obviously because I was sort of waddling around recovering from a section and then we did another night and then they let us go home the following afternoon yeah. so by the time we got to the day that Teddy died we were at home and we woke up at home with her. And I think for me, that actually just changed all of that worry. It kind of, I guess, 
we'd never got that far. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd never got that far. And so just to be there and be at home and be in a completely different environment with a baby who had already done so many things that he had never done, you know, opened eyes, cried, fed, all of those normal baby things, filled nappies. Um, <laughs> and it just, it really helps because all of that helped to unpick that, yeah. that worry. Yeah. Um, and so once we were in that position, although yes, it, it, crossed my mind that day it wasn't at the forefront of my mind like I imagined it was going to be yeah absolutely and was there a point that you started being able to relax when you went to bed and sleep soundly well obviously not with a baby but um, I think you Um, know what I mean it probably took me a good few months to really settle into the fact that she was here and that yeah. she was sticking around <laughs> and, um you know she still she still sleeps with that smart sock on every night you know I watch it on my phone yeah. <laughs> I can see her you know when I put her to bed I can see her heart rate I can see her oxygen levels um now she's in we moved her into her own room at six months which was a, a huge milestone for me yeah um, and something I didn't think I would be able to do at six months but actually the clever thing about that smart sock when it monitors their sleep is it tells you how many wakings they have in the night you can see a little chart of when they're in deep sleep when they're in light sleep so you can look at it the next day and I actually started to think that we were waking her up not so much us probably Boris snoring <laughs> I used to have a pug and um, my word, they can snore. <laughs> the trombone. And I guess we've got so used to it in the night that we're like, it's like white noise. But, you know, she was tiny and she was waking at everything. And I remember the first night that we moved her into her own room and I remember looking at that sleep socks monitor the next morning and thinking, she had the best night's sleep she's ever had. And it was because... <laughs> She didn't have all of us tossing and turning and, you know, pug snoring and all the rest of it. And yeah, she was so ready to to be in her own little peaceful environment and her little room is at the back of the house and it's really little and cosy. And yeah, she loves it in there. She's, I'm really lucky. She's um, the kind of baby that when I put her to bed at night, you know, I put zip, zip her into her little sleeping bag and give her her bunny and she's like, <sighs> like all oh. excited. <laughs> and she's all like, Ah, like smiling at me and I you know I just leave her and within a minute two minutes she's gone she, oh. she's such a happy little sleeper oh yeah, my she goodness loves- would she like she- to talk to my daughter because with- <laughs> this morning it was it was 3 a.m she's like hiya mama I'm like no. oh wow <laughs> hiya so mama I have to say, touch wood and whistle um we are nine months in and um she has been amazing on the sleep front oh, and I feel good. like as a parent, it's, I don't really talk about parenting other than, you know, the narrative of parenting that I really mm-hmm. want to raise awareness yeah. to because, you know, that's what for me will always be a huge part, the main part of what I'm trying to do. And although Olivia is here and she's safe, I feel like I don't want to share her life online no. um, because it's, 
you know it's, it's such a personal decision yeah, absolutely isn't it? absolutely um, and I think not, as well because you've got such a large following that you're going to have a lot of people's opinions with whatever yeah, whatever I, you post and I just think I I really I'm enjoying navigating that journey having done everything else very publicly mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying navigating that journey just us as a family yeah um, absolutely but yeah she's a great sleeper and um it's one of those things as a parent that when anyone does ask friends or or anyone else oh are you getting any sleep you almost don't want to be that person that goes yeah no <laughs> <laughs> she sleeps 12 hours like do you know what I mean I, I because you feel like it's I was actually talking no. to um, another mum about this Keely I don't know if you follow Keely um she uh has an account and and had her her son uh last year as well and she'd done a post about um about not wanting to to be the person who says yeah my yeah. baby sleeps through the night well, and then my... I messaged her and I was like oh my god it's <laughs> like, this little secret club of sleeping babies it's like the thing you can't talk about because you 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 don't nobody wants to be smug like nobody wants to be that person and I can't imagine anything worse than if I had a baby that was waking up three four times a night that one of my mates was like well really my baby sleeps 12 hours so I just go stay silent because you know what I just think it shows that every every baby is completely different and we we all have such individual experiences mine slept through um for the first three months from a newborn she slept through the night for three months I was like you're not meant to do this <laughs> like I was trying to wake her go sitting there pumping go what, what am I doing I'm going back to bed this is ridiculous it's a funny time yeah, um I'm very aware of time so I'll try not to to keep you much longer um but um you feature four other wonderful women in your book um two yeah. of whom I'm lucky enough to have already featured on on the podcast uh, Sophie yeah. and Zara how um, and why did you choose these ladies? So really, as I began writing the book, and it was it was actually in one of the first sort of Zoom meetings, because we did everything online last spring that I had with Lauren, who is my um, literary agent and worked with me on Ask Me His Name, and, and Beth, uh, my editor. I'm lucky to work with the same team again, which is wonderful, because we all yes. know each other. Yeah. And, know how each other works. and I said to them from the very beginning, it's really important to me that this book has a has another element to it that isn't my voice, mm-hmm. because from well, as you said, you know, when we when we started, you followed what I've been doing for the last four or five years, and I feel like I've had a lot to say about loss, and you know, I've blogged intermittently about um, fertility stuff along the way, and my voice is only one person's voice it's only one person's experience and it and it has one journey um and one outcome and that outcome happens to be a a pregnancy that was achieved spontaneously you know in between treatment rounds and I'm aware how incredibly fortunate and quite frankly a bloody miracle that that was Mm. to happen um but it's not everyone's story. And I know that my voice or my situation um, might not be one or probably won't be one that mirrors the vast majority of people. And although people might read the book and, and draw some similarities in things that they've been through, um, for me, it was really important that we got a range 
of voices and experiences. Um, and these were all women who I was already following um, on Instagram and had been um, had been following uh, either for a while or had recently started following. And I'd sort of really quickly got involved with what they were saying um, and how they were how they were writing it. Um, and so I just kind of got in touch with them crossing my fingers and saying, <laughs> you know, um, would you be willing to be involved in this in this project with me um and so yeah I mean obviously we've we've they've been paid by the publishers to, to share exactly I'm not I'm not I'm not like getting them in on this and then being like please do this for me for free you know they you know they've they've been do you know what yeah. I'm absolutely 100% sure they all would have done it for free though Sophie said that to me. Sophie yeah. was like, you don't need to see me. And I was like, no, no, we're going to. Um, but because I know from follow them, following them all that they were all as passionate as I was about having those conversations and about allowing other women to feel those feelings and, uh, and um, yeah, paving the way for, for people to, to talk about those things more, more freely. And, mm-hmm. um, Sophie and M's story just had me captivated Amazing, during the entire time of their pregnancy. Um, Vanessa has done a huge amount of work within her communities of breaking down the stigma that is attached to uh, fertility treatment mm-hmm. in black communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that she writes about her loss. In fact, Vanessa's writing, you'll probably agree with me, is just beautiful and when I read the the audio records um a few weeks back it really struck me again as I was reading it aloud just how eloquently she tells her and her husband's Mm -hmm. story um do you read their do you read their stories or I did I did that yeah um just because of everything that's going on it was difficult to get everyone um and I, I actually spoke to Sophie yesterday and I said, oh God, I just, I just want you to know, I really hope I've done it justice. I really Aww. hope that I've done your piece justice because yeah, I mean, reading all of them and I said the same to Zara, you know, is uh, they all bring something different and all of their stories are so different. Mm-hmm. Rachel had written um, a blog for me last year as part of my mum's voice blog series about mm-hmm. the adoption of her daughter. And it turned out to be one of the most read pieces on my blog that year. And so I knew that her story of of IVF not working out for them and that not being a really lengthy journey that they wanted to pursue and that they'd gone down the path of adoption, I knew that was one that resonated with so many people yeah. mm-hmm. um, because not everybody wants to take themselves a decade into no. IVF no. treatment before yeah. they look at other options. And so that was that was really important to, to include Rachel's story as well. And uh, she's another brilliant writer who's done an incredible story. And I, I really think that that her story will support a lot of couples who are kind of teetering on the edge of wondering, where, mm-hmm. do, where do we go now? What do we do from here? Mm-hmm. Um, and Absolutely, so, yeah, sobbed through her story yeah. as well. <laughs> I just feel so honoured. And I, I, they're probably all getting bored of me, keep messaging me and saying, <laughs> Um, I feel so yeah genuinely honoured that they they first they said yes yeah. and then secondly that they've all done such an absolutely cracking job of it because I really think it, it brings another dimension to the book and I hope that it means that it's a book 
for so many more people than it would be otherwise yeah. if it was just my story our story absolutely and in terms of your blog and instagram what's next for you so what is next so i mean really much of the same as what <laughs> i've done in previous years to be honest any, so, any more of your house left to renovate or are you going to start again there is nothing left here so <laughs> um, yeah and at the moment a, a renovation with a crawling baby um, <laughs> Bearing in mind, I struggled to make a cup of tea without her being drawn <laughs> by a magnetic force to the most dangerous place in the room. Oh. Um, the, the, the thought of renovating just fills me with, with dread. Um, so, yeah, we I'm really happy where, you know, where we are in our lives at the moment, because, you know, I spent many years all that time that I didn't have a baby here filling my time with creative projects that would you know make me feel happier and and I did that a lot of my time and and now I can kind of reap the rewards of the fact that we have a a home that we're really happy in she's really happy in um and yeah it's it's probably not something that I plan to share much more of online because it would be really boring of like oh here's the same (laughs) It's the same living room that we've had for the last four years. I'm not going to make any changes because I love it. Um, so <laughs> it would be an incredibly boring interiors account. And so, yeah, I think I want to focus, as I always have, on raising awareness for charities that are really important to me. I'm still involved in the Little Roof Fund, which, for anyone who doesn't know, that is the charity of the neonatal intensive care unit who cared for Teddy. So I'm part of the charity group. So uh, we have sort of monthly meetings where we decide how things are funded, where things are funded. Fundraising over the past year has been quite a challenge because Mm -hmm. normal things that would have raised funds for us haven't gone ahead. Um, And so, yeah, still trying to utilise what I've done online to set up partnerships with brands so that we can, you know, support the neonatal units where we can. Um, I'm a a patron for Teddy's Wish, which is a charity, as you know, set up by Jen and Chris after their son Eddie died many years ago. Um, And that is something that I'm again incredibly passionate about helping Jen and and everything that they're doing they run wonderful retreats for parents um, bereavement retreats they support people with free counselling when they need it and then obviously you know stuff with Tommy's as well Mm. because that has been a huge help and resource for me in recent years Um, I think when I was pregnant with Olivia there probably wasn't a week that went by when I didn't refer to the Tommy's website for something um, that I was worried about and the same goes for when I you know I was going through treatment and miscarriage so I really want to to carry on my support for those charities um, and use my Instagram to to be able to do that and um, the mum's voice blog has become a really big part of what I'm doing it's built a really really big community online and I get emails every week from people saying you know, I, I just read this piece or I read that piece and I can't thank you enough for sharing other people's stories because that reflects my journey mm-hmm. and what I've been going through. Um, and so that is something that I really want to continue for as long as people are willing to share. Um, but for yeah, for the most part, I am just, I'm mummy and I'm enjoying being Olivia's mummy because, you know, when this all began, 
that was all I ever wanted to be. So everything else can kind of, you know, take more of a a secondary place Good. of, of my older priorities. And I'm, yeah, I'm just really, really enjoying that. I'm so pleased. Um, at the end of my podcast, um, I ask um, all my guests the same three questions, um, if you're happy to answer. Um, so the first being, if you were able to have coffee, gin, wine, Prosecco with any other female, alive, dead, fictional, um, who would it be and why? Oh, were you prepped? <laughs> I would say... I think there would be two. Yeah. Um, the first would be my grandmother, who is no longer with us. That's my mum's mum, because she died when I was just before I was 16. But I remember her being like so fun, so full of life. And I know that, no, it's fine. I know that she struggled to, to have my mum after my two aunties um, and she had a miscarriage and she used to kind of sometimes talk about it when we were younger and you could tell it was something that still really affected her yeah. but I think it was of a time you know in the in mm-hmm. the 50s you didn't yeah. really talk about stuff like that did you yeah. it was like um and so I'd like to have a cup of tea with her or probably a gin and tonic knowing nice. her yeah and just and kind of kind of show her what I've done yeah no yeah <laughs> that makes sense it does um, but weirdly my my great auntie my grandmother's sister is still alive and she's 88 and um she is my number one super fan and I love her. Oh. <laughs> she's she lives on her own and she was never able to have children either um and she um kind of missed the boat with regards to treatment and stuff like that it was before all of that was really a possibility yeah um, and her husband never wanted to adopt and then he died when he was in his 40s very suddenly so she's been on her own oh wow from her 40s to now and never remarried never you know she's she's wonder woman she's amazing um Aww. And she even texted me on Sunday morning at 8.30 and said, Elle, just picked up the Daily Mail. You magazine was the first thing I read. So proud of you. Lots of love. Bless you. Bless you. That was what it said in all these pieces. She's just wicked. I love her. So, yeah, I would like to to yeah see my grandma and her together would be amazing. Um, and second person would be Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. That is for very different reasons. Um, I don't know whether you've read her book. Um, I have to admit, I haven't read. But I've, the way I get around this is I audio book everything. Okay. <laughs> and if yours had been out on audio, I'd have done the same. <laughs> uh, Michelle Obama's book, aside from being completely amazing in so many other ways, I was, was brilliant. I was astonished at how openly she spoke about her own fertility yeah. journey. And I would really love to talk to her about that. Yeah. No, I love that part of her book as well. I thought that was incredible that she opened up so much. You know, because she is is one of those women in the world that we all look at and we're all in awe of because mm-hmm. of all of her achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think for her to say, look, if it could happen to me yeah. like that, it can happen to anyone, yeah. um, was a really, really powerful message. Amazing. Thank you. And... Since becoming a mum to Olivia, have you found yourself saying anything that um, your mum used to say to you? Every goddamn day of my life. <laughs> I am 
I always say this to my mum, even my brothers say this, like, like they speak to me and they say, you are morphing into mum. Like you are, what is, is going is on? Is Nico aware? Is he okay with this? <laughs> this to me, you are your mother. You are your mother. <laughs> I can think of worse people to be, to be honest. So, oh. I, uh, particularly with the, with Olivia, I, I hear myself say things and, and my mum will always do this thing where you, when you're having a, not an argument with her, a disagreement and, she will finish the, the the disagreement by saying, "Well, there we go then," as if <laughs> like as if that's how it that's how it is that's how we're ending it. It's such a weird last line. <laughs> so I'll say, "But this is unfair," and that's this, and that. And she'll go, "Well, there we go then." And you know, when you're a teenager and you're trying to explain why yeah. you want to go to something, or you know, oh, this well, is unfair. midnight's not late enough to get back. My mum would just say, "Well, there we go then." Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Um, so I, I think it's a, probably only a matter of time once Olivia starts communicating that I rock that line out. But at the moment, <laughs> I, that I, I hear myself saying things that my that my mum would say on a daily basis. Oh, very sweet. And um, considering your journey, uh, which it hasn't been short, is there is there? Oh, it's a big question again. Like one piece of advice that you could give to? And then there we go. I am asking you for advice. Yeah, that's uh, fine. A piece of advice or um, I do sometimes call it a life hack or a mum hack anything that you think would help others so there is one thing that I had to remind myself continually during treatment and all the complications that came in between and that was actually something that Emma Cannon told me and it was I was sort of fairly new into you know the time of trying and going down the route of drugs and everything like that and I think it's very very easy to become overwhelmed borderline obsessed with what everyone else is achieving and I think that comes from us from a very young age we there always seems to be a bar of comparison doesn't there you know as we're growing up you should be doing this by this age you should be doing this by this age and I think we get into our 20s and 30s and it's like you should be getting married and having babies and this and that and and you watch other people doing that seemingly effortlessly just achieving the thing that your heart aches for so much and I can remember saying to Emma that I felt really left behind particularly after Teddy died because all of my friends who had been pregnant around the same time were now enjoying that having a a toddler and potentially having another baby on the way and it was me and I felt like I was just sort of stuck really like stuck in the mud I couldn't move forward and Emma said to me you know you must always remember to focus on your journey not anyone else's around you no matter how difficult that is focus on your path focus on your journey and trust that eventually it will get you exactly where you need to be whatever that looks like and it's really difficult on some days to trust in that but I just hear Emma's voice whenever I'm having one of those days now to do with anything not just to do with beauty and stuff and I'm feeling a bit you know filled with self-doubt about whatever or seeing other people do things brilliantly and you're just kind of stagnating and I yeah I really 
trust that that is sound advice that she gave me mm-hmm. and I kind of live by it now that you know just trust that eventually your own path if you if you work on it and you nourish it enough mm-hmm. and don't get caught up in everyone else's shit you will get to where you're meant to be and that's hopefully where we're all heading <laughs> I think that's great advice for for new mums as well because I think that's such a dangerous part of of having of becoming a new mum is that you compare yourself to everybody else like the sleep like you were talking about and what your child is eating and how they're moving can you do this can it do that can it you know is it eating its food mm. um, I have a great sleeper but god forbid if I put something in front of her that she doesn't <laughs> oh my god um, and that's not through want of trying yeah. um, so I've just had to have again my mum has been really helpful there because she's like it's fine she'll eat when she's hungry don't worry she's not starving you know and that's kind of you just have to not oh they always say don't they comparison is a thief of joy and I think in in motherhood that definitely yeah. definitely is the case it's so true absolutely um El thank you so so much for your time I think I've kept you way longer than I was meant to so I do apologize thank you um, so much it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you yeah. And, yeah, thank you for asking me on the podcast because yeah. it's been a kind of a long time since I've done many things like this and um yeah it's nice to kind of get back into it so thank you you've got a book <laughs> that's why we're here um so um a bump in the road is out on today i'm going to say it's today because the podcast is coming out today on the thursday that's right thank you so much thank you um and yeah good luck with the rest of your few days and i hope it all goes well i know many of you like me will have followed Elle's story closely for years she has managed to speak when many of us didn't have a voice whilst battling her way through her own relentless turbulent journey She has used her pain to bring positivity, hope, connection and solidarity to so many and somehow all with a sprinkle of humour and swear words. Please take the time to read the show notes to follow the charities Elle supports and also the other contributors to A Bump in the Road. Sophie Smith and Zara Dawson, who you can find on earlier episodes of Motherhood Exposed and Vanessa Hay and Rachel Lyon. As always, thank you for listening. Just to say that our Bop and Bee website is finally live, so please take a look for all your cloth nappy needs at bopandbee.eco. Have a super week and I'll be back next Thursday.